This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Oh, we know our love will grow. That's what the man said. Yeah, we want to find out what the man, Ray Dalio, had to say to our Eric Schatzker. Uh, and this is a story I've got to just point out that this is what Bloomberg Terminal users are reading about. Of course, the billionaire hedge fund manager, Ray Dalio, uh, talked to our Eric Schatzker, editor-at-large here at Bloomberg News, right now in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Ray Dalio, if you don't Hi, know Carol. who he is, you've been hiding under a rock or something. He runs the world's biggest hedge fund. <laughs> and he's done it well. He has. He has. Over the years, he's delivered uh, some great returns for his clients. Less great since the financial crisis, but he's built a firm that manages $185 billion. And as a result, what Ray Dalio says carries some weight and influence with people. We listened to him. You guys talked about a bunch of subjects. What really stood out for you? Well, we're 10 years after the financial crisis. The recovery is nine years in. It's one of the longest ever for a developed market, certainly for the United States. And inevitably, we're wondering, when's the next downturn going to happen? Is it going to be a crisis like the one that we saw last? If not, what should we look for? And how's it going to take shape? So Ray and I spent quite a bit of time talking about that. And he, and as you might imagine, he said a few interesting things, among them, that it's still a couple years away. Hmm. And that's not necessarily because of the stimulus that the Trump administration is providing. It's that the debt cycle, as Ray sees it, and he's all about cycles, hasn't fully played out yet. Every cycle is similar. There's a buildup of debt. It gets to a point, usually because of rising interest rates, where there's too much debt relative to to the amount of income or revenue that a company or a person is taking in. Again, companies have – or a government. Defaults begin. Governments tend not to default. They do occasionally. But defaults begin – You have a crisis, the economy begins to contract severely, and authorities have to figure out how to get them out. In Ray's view, Hank Paulson, Ben Bernanke, and Tim Geithner did a beautiful job creating what he has termed a beautiful deleveraging. Hmm. It's going to be different the next time. The next time, the Fed won't have nearly as much flexibility to cut interest rates because they're still historically low, and it's got a large balance sheet. And so quantitative easing isn't going to work quite the same way. And the crisis is going to be different. It's not going to be a mortgage crisis. Yeah. It's not going to be a corporate debt crisis. He believes that it's going to be a sovereign debt crisis, that we're going to have to print too much. We're going to have to print money to soak up the amount of treasury bonds that we're going to need to issue to close the deficit gap. We have a little clip of uh, that portion uh, from Ray Dalio. Let's listen to that. Uh, let me let me maybe clarify. Um, when you hit zero interest rates, you have a different type of debt crisis. You have more likely to have a depression. So I think the period that we're in is very similar to the 1935-1940 period. So different, as you said. Yes, because as he said. Yeah. the crisis that we went through in 2008 was a lot more like the beginning of the Great Depression. But you'll remember that in 1937, the economy tanked again. Right. And that lasted through the end of 1938, and that's what we're going to be confronting, say, a couple of years from now. What does he have to say about the emerging market crisis? I think we're all trying to figure out how big this becomes, a contagion effect. Is he worried about it? 
Well, worried, no. Ray isn't the kind of guy who worries about things apart from stuff that we all should be worried about, like the potential for social unrest in the next crisis and what do people who feel like they've been hard done by inequality do. No, what he's when it comes to emerging markets, first of all, he says there is a crisis. Countries like Turkey and Argentina are in the midst of a crisis. Now, it's a very different kind of a crisis from the kinds of crises that we live through in developed markets. Why? Because those countries do most of their borrowing in foreign currencies, U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. And so they're much more subject to the inflows and sudden outflows of capital. And so the sudden outflow of capital deepens the crisis. That's why Argentina is staring down the barrel of a gun right now. And in his opinion, they're only two-thirds of the way through. This crisis, the one that they're experiencing, still has a one-third leg down in front of it, which means that the peso probably hasn't bottomed, and the economy is still going to continue contracting, and it's not yet time to buy because in Ray's words... You don't see value until there's blood in the streets. Well, that's what I was curious about. What advice is he giving to investors? I know he's not going to open up his books completely, right, and tell us. But No, he's very reticent to do that. Uh, the biggest point of advice, the biggest piece of advice that he had is that at this stage in the cycle, he said we're seven innings into a nine-inning ball game. This is a game for professionals. An inning can Do not try though. to time the market. <laughs> yeah. Do not try to figure out where there's value. Do not, you know, style yourself the analyst. If you're going to take exposure, he didn't get into the mechanics of it all, but the implication was that if you want to be exposed to risk, best to be very diversified, which is to say, again, I'm not in the business of recommendations. I'm just trying to channel what he would say. But if you wanted equities, you'd buy an S&P 500 index fund, for example, or you'd buy a Russell 2000 index fund. Right. Because then you're not subject to kinds of sudden gapping down that, that – that we often see he late about, in the cycle. He talked about balance in the portfolio. Let's know how that. to have balance in the portfolio. Know how to achieve that. Because each market performs as a reflection of the economy at the time, and all of the economy's characteristics keeps changing. There's inflation and deflation and all that. Balance is key. Um, what's really interesting, it is among the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have you been getting feedback and, and just curious any kind of responses? Well, people are a little confused by... This idea that we're going to have, again, in Ray's words, a currency crisis two years from now when the economy is growing at a 4% clip and inflation seems moderate and unemployment is at a record low and wages are going 2.9%. As Ray said, you know, what feels good doesn't tell you anything about how the future is going to unfold. And crises always start with euphoria. We're going to leave it on that note. Well done, Eric Schatzker. Again, well done. Eric Schatzker, editor-at-large at Bloomberg News. Check out Bloomberg.com to listen to more of his interview. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. So one of our most read stories on the Bloomberg has to do with good times, bad times for hedge fund uh, folks. Uh, some of the stars who got it right in uh, 2008 in the hedge fund world, well, they ended up kind of being cursed for the most part uh, in the years subsequent to that. Our Sejal Kishan takes a look at David Einhorn, John Paulson, and Alan 
Howard. She is hedge fund reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Great story. Uh, Jason Kelly and I cover it, too, in Bloomberg Business Week on the weekend. Um, really fascinating story. Because we're, we're taking this week, right? We're looking at the 10-year anniversary from the Lehman bankruptcy, all that happened. What have we learned? Are we ready for the next crisis kind of thing? And you took a look at the hedge fund world, and there were some folks that really got it right. Walk us through this story. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I remember actually um, moving to New York in May 2018, and one of my first assignments was to cover 2008. Sorry, 2008, that's right. Um, and it was David Einhorn giving his speech on Lehman Brothers, and it was shocking to everybody at the time. Because I mean, having said that, Bear had already gone down, but it was shocking. Because um, he my, just said, they're going down. Yeah, and he had a very detailed analysis of it all. And four months later, he was right. Um, And at the same time, we have like John Paulson, who was already right on the subprime crisis and was making money from, I think, 2006 onwards. And 2007 was actually the big year for him. But he continued making money in 2008. So, again, nailed the subprime. Einhorn had uh, nailed Lehman. Um, and his bet was he was gonna, he was betting that uh, more U.S. subprime mortgage bar- borrowers, that they were going to default, yes, right? Yeah. And he was absolutely right. He made billions of dollars absolutely, off this. Yeah. And Alan Howard. Yeah, so he didn't call the subprime crisis, nor did he call Lehman. But um, he's a macro trader. Right. Um, and a lot of them tend to thrive in periods of volatility and sort of market calamity. Um, so he had, um, from what I understand from my sources, had um, put in place, like basically trading derivatives options and put in place um, or constructed a portfolio that would thrive when there's market volatility. So he was ready for it. And a lot of his peers admittedly did well, these macro traders, right. but he surpassed all of them by, I think it was like something like 20% that year. What's interesting too, and I know you put this in your story, is that for David Einhorn, I mean, this was kind of the most memorable speech of his career. I mean, it really made his reputation and brought in a lot of investor money as a result. Yeah, I mean, well, but the irony, though, that he was right on Lehman, but he actually lost money that year, along with a lot of other stock pickers, because a lot of his other um, wages, his long investments, right? they all got, you know, wound up in the whole market crash. And then, so he did post, uh, before this year, his uh, first and, and worst losing year, but... Yeah, I think he lost, I think you put the numbers in there, he lost 23% in 08, but, you know, the S&P 500 lost 37%. Right, yeah, it's all relative. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Paulson. He was someone who was pretty low profile, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody, I mean, he was a a merger arb guy, Mm -hmm. so basically betting on mergers and things like that. Um, But pretty much like, you know, he wasn't like the big names like Bill Ackman or David Einhorn. Um, so this wasn't really his niche, betting on subprime mortgages or anything to do with that. But him and his team, they stumbled across an anomaly and did their research and then started buying these CDOs and then, well, CDSs, sorry. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, yeah, he made something in the tune of, not personally, but for his firm, uh, $15 billion. That's a lot of money. And, and Howard, I know you point out that he actually saw double-digit returns in mm-hmm. 07, 08, and mm-hmm. 09. Mm-hmm. And this, like, number threw me. Assets swelled to $40 billion by 2013. That's right. I mean, so, you know, w- when you made money during the financial crisis, when nobody else did, right. or not many people did, a lot of the pension plans, all the big investors, you know, who were hurt during the financial crisis were like, this, look at this guy's track record. Right? But this is what hedge fund 
right? Hedge funds are supposed to do. I mean, they're supposed to be smarter than the most, ignore what the pack is doing. And when, you know, the pack is running off the cliff, I think you're right. You know, they have figured out a better strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're all about. How have these guys done fared? since and we just got about 40 seconds yeah sure i mean well quickly i mean with um david ironhorn he's it's just going from bad to worse this year unfortunately yeah. he's down 25 percent. he's been long on a lot of stocks that have actually um gone down and he's been uh short on stocks that have gone up not what you want to be how about paulson yeah paulson i mean just ever since the uh, big subprime uh win he sought to like put on these other big trades, which didn't really go in his way. You know, gold, he was right for the first couple of years, and then since then, hasn't done so well. Alan Howard? Well, he unfortunately, you know, as a result of 2008, central banks pumped money into the system, made them more calmer, and fueled a 10-year rally in stocks, and that hasn't been great for macro traders like Howard. But you do point out that there's a fund that he solely manages, and that is up about 44% in the first five yeah, months of this he, year. Yeah, he did really well in May, uh, just amid all of the um, European crisis, the political crisis. There. It's a fascinating story, and everybody should uh, definitely read it, because this is what Wall Street's reading. Um, Sejal Kishan, Hedge Fund Reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, go back about 10 years, and it did feel like the financial system was definitely tumbling down. We're coming up on the 10th anniversary of Lehman Brothers filing for bankruptcy and the unraveling of the U.S. and really global financial system and markets. At the front line, our next guest, Tom Russo, former general counsel at AIG, former chief legal officer at Lehman Brothers at the time of its collapse in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, along with our Shanali Basak. She is investment banking reporter at Bloomberg News. She's written a lot about Tom, and as I mentioned, both in our New York studio. So great to be here. What an interesting week. I think we're looking back, looking for a perspective. Tom, first of all, take us back 10 years ago and what it really was like uh, in the midst of the of the crisis and leading up to the Lehman bankruptcy. Well, it was just a walk in the park. Uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was no, no pressure, big deal. right? It was no big deal. Was it close uh, that the government was going to take care of Lehman? Yeah, I thought, uh, I thought for sure the government uh, would be there uh, either to backstop uh, Lehman or alternatively to be very, very helpful in um, getting someone to buy its equity. I never really thought that anyone could be that, I don't want to say the word stupid because it's not proper, I think a better word is dumb, uh, to let Lehman go. And um, uh, and so I really didn't th- think it was in the cards. I mean, after all, uh, just from a data point of view, they saved Bear Stearns using the power they had in Section 13.3 of, of the Federal Reserve Act. They saved Fannie and Freddie the, the week before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was obviously a crisis going on. And from my point of view, there was certainly adequate uh, collateral uh, uh, to lend uh, money to Lehman. And and more important, if they let Lehman go, it was pretty clear, and we had told the Fed this, we sent them a paper, mm-hmm. I believe it was on that Saturday, the 13th, which went through all the things that would happen. And we were told, well, you're talking your own book, but it seemed obvious that there was going to be a problem. And uh, in uh, 2010, Bernanke uh, in his testimony for the Financial Crisis uh, Commission, uh, said that he always knew 
that this would be a catastrophe. However, eight days after uh, they let Lehman go in uh, testimony before the banking committee, he said quite the opposite. He said, well, the people knew uh, about Lehman's problems, so they had plenty of time to deal with it. I call it Bernanke 1 and Bernanke 2. Tom, where were you 10 years ago on this day? Uh, on uh, Are you talking about this day? Uh, three days September, before. Oh, three Friday days before. Be, on, on the 12th. Uh, Were you living at the see. offices? Uh, basically living at the offices, uh, getting uh, very – I'm trying to remember if I got any sleep. Uh, I must have gotten some sleep, but I don't, I don't remember it. Uh, uh, and uh, and it, it was um, – you know, it was getting very close because uh, the we had we had done our earnings, we had uh, filed uh, yeah. all of our things and uh, our our uh, financials, and it was very clear we still had in uh, in uh, round numbers twenty eight billion dollars in equity. Right. Uh, the 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 Fed certainly knew uh, about uh, the nature of our balance sheet. They they were living in our offices. Uh, the SEC was in our offices. Everyone knew, so I, I thought the data was pretty clear. But saying that, when you have a herd effect or a run on the bank, you just you know you could go out to the O one one level uh, in risk, and uh, uh, when there's a run on the bank, you really need uh, a central bank uh, to stop it. Right. Uh, so speaking of, you know, central banks stopping it, you know, after the, the bailouts of 2008, you know, where are we today? If something like this were to happen again, are how... Are we in better shape? Are we in better shape? How is the central government supposed to help in the event of the next crisis? Well, I think in, in, in so many ways we're in uh, better shape uh, with respect to balance sheets, with respect to risk metrics, with respect to uh, leverage uh, for the most part in that sense. In the sense that you're asking uh, about whether the federal government, when you when you look at the crisis, the uh, uh, I'm very critical, obviously, of the Fed for not saving uh, 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 Lehman because they had every ability to do it. Mm-hmm. But saying that, everything else they did was somewhat miraculous. And uh, uh, while I would give them an F on the Lehman part, <laughs> I, I would give them uh, pretty much an A on everything else. But the thing that saved everyone, the the one power in Section 13.3 that was absolutely necessary to bail out everyone, including Morgan Stanley, including Goldman Sachs, including Bear Stearns, including AIG, right. uh, which I am very familiar with, uh, the government in Dodd-Frank took it away. Took it away. This- and and they didn't yes. take it totally away, but almost totally away. It's so fascinating because in, in Business Week, the magazine this week, we write about this. Peter Coy has a great story. Economics editor basically says, looking at could we you know deal with another crisis and that how many of the tools that we had are no longer there. And that makes us more vulnerable. Yes, the banks have more capital, a bigger cushion, but we don't have, have some I know, of and provisions. that's a very, very, very important point. And it goes to a, a philosophical point about whether you listen to the general public, no more bailouts and what have you, or whether you look at data. 
look at this crisis, learn from this crisis, how, and, and the crisis, that power was critical. Can I ask you, just playing off of that, philosophical public learning, one of the big concerns and public sentiment pushback was that executives didn't go to jail. People lost their homes, lost their jobs. Do you think something should have been done and people should have been prosecuted? Well, that goes to, you know, that, goes to that same philosophical point. Do you punish people who are innocent, but because it seems like the right thing to do, it it because let, let's if just they were go through innocent. yeah but <laughs> but they were investigated by the SEC there was lots of investigations and one of the, the things I was so proud about Lehman Lehman was investigated for years after the bank years the they went the division enforcement went up to the commission saying we found nothing right right they and got sent back Lehman. and then they went back but the point is the yeah. point is that it sounds good put people in jail. But they have to commit a crime. Once you begin to just listen to the, the general public without the data of evidence, then you ruin the rule of law. And the fact is that the, and and mm -hmm. to blame investment banks is to also miss the point. The point is everyone was was the problem. Everyone, right. the consumer was well, the problem. The the. The federal government was the problem. They encouraged this. They set I, the rules on life. I agree that there's a lot of blame around. We've run out of time. Come back at some point because there's a reason people sit and talk to you for hours because there's so much there. Tom Russo, uh, former general counsel at AIG, former chief legal counsel at Lehman, and Shanali, thank you. See you coming out of the Bank of America with a whole lot of loot. Ain't nobody's business but your own. So this guy has written just about everything. Wars, politics, cars, economics, etiquette. He's the person you want to sit next to at a dinner party. With us is author and humorist P.J. O'Rourke. His book, None of My Business, he explains money, banking, debt, equity, assets, liabilities, and why he's not rich and neither are you. You had me at none of my business. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have you here. Um, Great to be here. There's so much fun stuff in this book, and I've been kind of taking notes. Um, why did you write this? A great, just a wonderful subject matter. I, I used to be a foreign correspondent. I, I aged out of that. Uh, I was uh, in the uh, middle of the Iraq where I realized I'm too old to be scared stiff and I'm too stiff to sleep on the ground. And uh, I've been covering politics for like 45 years. Right. And I'm sick of that. I'm just sick of that. Politics has gone absolutely nuts. I mean, it's it's beyond being able to make fun of. And I, I've always had this, or not always, but for 15 years or so, I've had an interest in economics. And I thought, well, why not? Put that interest to, you know, here's a subject with lots of funny stuff going on, and you don't have to get into a shouting match with your neighbor over the yard signs. you got to love this because you write, um, I'd rather be cleaning out the chicken coop than trying to sell Puerto Rican utility bonds, balancing the state budget of Illinois, negotiating Brexit, be in the same room as Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> I mean, what is your take on the world of business, the world of economics, the the, the world that puts food on my family's table? <laughs> well, uh, you know, from a political point of view, I think that it's uh, we're in ever-present danger. I mean, the, the politicians... Mm. Money is power, and money is uh, diffuse power. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, sure some people have a lot of money, but they don't have your money. Money is not a fixed pie. It's not a zero sum game. You can go out and make more money. There's tremendous freedom in economics, and freedom. Politicians don't like freedom. I mean, except their own freedom. They, they don't like power, except their own power. 
And um, we've got a, a politician, a, a wacky politician on one side of the question at the moment. I think come November, we're going to get a whole bunch of wacky politicians from 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 the other uh, from the other side. To be and, fair, some would say maybe don't necessarily agree with the methods, but agree that rolling back some regulations, rolling back some taxes, renegotiating trade agreements are a good thing. Well, you know, I I do. Rolling back regulations, definitely. Uh, I mean, rules we have to have. Regulations is giving power uh, to people who don't know what they're talking about, usually right out of business school and law school. Uh, uh, So rolling back the regulations, I'm I'm all for. Negotiating better trade deals. Do we have a bunch of trade partners that don't live up to their half of the bargain? Yeah. Is this the way I would go about it? Well, no. But if it works... Okay. Right. Uh, the taxes. Oh, I love the tax cuts, but I'd like to see co-committing ta- cut in spending. Uh, spending is, you know, is what's going to eventually get us. Sooner or later, we're going to run out of being the world's reserve currency, and people are going to say, "Wait a minute. Why is your why is the U.S. dollar so much better than a Venezuelan bolivar?" <laughs> it's a big difference. Yeah. Um, how do you see though the inequalities that have developed financially? Certainly, coming up, we're spending so much time here at Bloomberg this week. You know, looking at the 10-year anniversary of the Lehman bankruptcy, the financial meltdown, the financial crisis, and we've got some great charts as we do, and we like to do here at Bloomberg showing that truly the wealthier have got wealthier and they have a bigger portion of uh, the financial pie and the poorer have gotten bigger and they're sharing a smaller part of that pie. Well, first place, let's go back to that zero-sum thing. Uh, It's not a zero-sum. It doesn't matter how much money other people have. There are very few classes of assets, maybe beachfront property, that are zero-sum and if somebody's got it, you can't have it. Uh, there's there's plenty of stuff out there for all of us if we get a chance to go get it. I'm worried about the the, the opportunity, the disparity in opportunity uh, mm-hmm. uh, between a certain class of Americans, not all of them that rich, but a certain class of Americans that are white and come from the right suburbs, male, uh, uh, and have all the traditional advantages, and have a, and and have what's deemed to be a good education. There are tremendous advantages in this in this in this job market. Uh, I think that we have not um, paid nearly enough attention to what kind of advantages we can give yeah. less advantaged people. Right. So the advantage true oppor- disparity. True opportunities rather than just saying that we're giving them opportunities. That's right. And, and, but, but the wealth disparity, I mean, I get kids. And one thing I tell my kids is there's a lot out there in the world to ignore. And one of the things you should ignore is whether somebody's a bunch richer than you are. You okay. shouldn't necessarily ignore if they're a bunch poorer than you are. Because there may be something that, you know, they may need your help. But if when somebody's a, 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 a bunch richer than you are, you just say, good for you, and ignore it. That's a great, great lesson. Um, just got about 50 seconds left here. Can I throw some words at you? Word yeah. association? Um, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, evil, evil geniuses in the in, in the in the in the evil high school math club with weaponized slide rules. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, Fed, the Federal Reserve. Uh, they should stop cranking out that money. I don't like fiat money that's there because it's there because it's there. Apps. Don't know how to use any. <laughs> don't even know how to get any. My iPhone might as well be a flip phone. <laughs> Nicely said when Apple's uh, releasing a bunch of new products. Just quickly, about 20 seconds. What if everything was free? Well, if everything was free, it would be an absolute disaster. It would be It would be people tearing each other's heads off because it would be a return to tooth and claw.
Mm, and that's how you end the book. It is how I end the you book. You wake up from a, a little dream. fantasy. I wake up in one morning and everything is free. In this crazy world, this is a fun book to read. PJ O'Rourke, None of My Business. PJ explains money, banking, debt, equity, assets, liabilities, and why he's not rich and neither are you. This is not like my economics degree, but it's great reading. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just a few minutes left in today's trading session, about uh, nine and a half to be exact. Uh, it is time for the drive to the close. Greg Lucan is back with us, founder and CEO at Lucan Investment Analytics, roughly $350 million in assets under management. Greg joining us uh, on the phone from Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Greg, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the market environment. Uh, I guess one of the big topics, several topics this week, you know, we're all thinking about 10 years since the financial crisis, where we are. We're thinking about this record bull run that became off of uh, those unprecedented moves during the financial crisis. It continues today. And then you've got there just kind of looking over our shoulder and kind of bothering us a little bit. What's going on in emerging markets? How do you sum it up and then translate it into actionable investment advice? Thanks, Carol. Good to be back. Um, the uh, the 10-year mark is a great time to uh, to look back and reflect that what caught so many people unaware uh, or unprepared was the lack of a risk management strategy. So this, um, there's been so much talk lately about the uh, coming bear market, even as, as uh, the Dow and the S&P hit, uh, hit new highs. Um, but the question I think that investors have to answer is, do they have a plan for when the market does roll over, which may not be this year or next? But uh, there needs to be some risk management strategy, and uh, that's evident in emerging markets right now. Because markets do roll over. Even if they it's do. a long cycle, they roll over. Inevitably, just as, just as night follows day. And, uh, you know, we're seeing that in emerging markets. They had a great year last year. Um, you know, a follow-on to the uh, previous year, 2016, uh, uh, but, you know, 2015 was a devastating year in emerging markets. This year is not very good, but the linchpin there is China. And you see uh, the China ETFs trading up today, emerging markets ETFs trading up today. Um, uh, but China is really the key there. And that Cast a pall over all the uh, emerging markets. Hey, Greg, the last time you were on with us, I think it was early August, you were on with uh, my co-host uh, Jason Kelly and our colleague uh, uh, Taylor Riggs, and you talked about how the markets were being dominated by the four T's, some nice alliteration, Trump, Twitter, trade, and tariffs. Do you still see it that way, or are we moving into maybe a different um, bunch of things to follow? I think that the um, the predominant factor here are really the the, uh, the 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 three of those four T's: Trump, trade, and tariffs, because that's what's casting uh, the the pall on things. Um, earnings in the U.S. have come in really strong. Uh, they're fine in emerging markets as well, but 
China represents about a third of most emerging markets indices. Mm-hmm. And and so what we see going on, uh, the uh, positioning, uh, as uh, hopefully go into trade talks uh, with China, is really uh, pushing emerging markets down close to bear market territory. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of, you know, interesting to watch those trades and, and try and make sense with, you know, what's going on in some of the developed markets, most notably the United States. I mean, should investors be channeling more into the U.S. because it looks better than most, or what? Well, there's there's two ways to look at that. Number one is the markets are telling us if there is a trade war, that the U.S. markets will fare better mm-hmm. than the international markets. So that's that's one thing the markets are telling us. The other thing, though, if we look below the surface, you see it looks like a lot of the risk has been squeezed out of markets like uh, uh, Brazil and China, and they look like they are uh, trying to create some bottom here. But it really all hinges on how those uh, T's reflect on China, Trump, trade and tariffs. You know, it's interesting you bring up, um, uh, understandably, the president and, and his influence on the markets. It's certainly been one of our big themes since he's been elected, uh, and even before so when he was a candidate. Our most read story on the Bloomberg Terminal today and in the last 60 minutes has to do with J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon making some comments. And he he said, I think I could beat uh, Trump in an election. Uh, I'm as tough as he is. I'm smarter than he is. Uh, he said that earlier, I guess, in the morning. And then by noon, the bank set out a statement and he said, well, I'm not running for president. I just want to say I regret making that statement. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting. We are living in, uh, you know, uh, a different world to say it. I guess what I want to get to, though, is elections and midterm elections and political risk. How do you think about that? How does that factor into what you're doing, if at all? And just got about uh, about, a, about a minute here. Okay, great. Um, I'll keep it short. Um, We believe that money is a lot more powerful than politics. Sure, politics can influence it. But if you look at the way markets have behaved under Democrats and Republicans and uh, Democratic-controlled Congress or Republican-controlled Congress, over the long haul, it ends up being about the same. It's really about the economy. It is, right? We've learned that from past elections. And depending on how folks are doing, do they have jobs or wages going up? Um, Hey, great to check in with you once again. Greg Lucan, he's founder and chief executive officer at Lucan Investment Analytics, roughly $350 million in assets under management. Greg joining us on the phone from Nashville, Tennessee. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah.